0: Welcome to the BABC LA's live zoom webinar converted to a podcast. Each episode, you'll hear enlightening interviews on timely subjects with British and American experts across industries.
1: I think we'll kick this off. Shall we, Phil? Yep. It. All right. Very excited to have you here. And good morning, everyone who's listening. My name is James language. I'm the president of the British American Business Council here in Los Angeles. And we have a spectacular guest here today. He speaks for himself, so I'll let him do the talking. But just to give you a perspective, we have Phil Hansen. He is a Brit. He is a young man, and he has just won the Le Mans 24-hour endurance race. And if you want to feel old, he was born in 1999. So thanks a lot for that, Phil. And good morning. Great to have you here.
0: Yeah, great. Great to be here.
1: You know, for those listening now who maybe aren't familiar with the Le Mans endurance race, am I getting that right, Phil? Is that the best way to, to call it? Or well, Le Mans yeah. 24 hour? What do you guys refer to? Hours.
0: Yeah, I normally just call I call it Le Mans because everyone I speak to knows what it is because I'm in my little world of racing. But yeah, Le Mans 24 hours, I think is what most people call it.
1: Well, sure. Unless, I mean, I guess anyone listening who's been living under a rock, Le Mans has been around. It's the This it was the 88th year of the 24 hours. It was actually started back in 1923, I believe. There was a pause for World War II and some other stuff as well. But it's the longest running race ever. And it was an endurance race. It was initially started to test out new automobiles in the market. And it's gone from there. Phil, how did you get in to Le Mans? It's not just something you wake up one day and just go and do. I'm, I'm sure there's a story
0: here. So tell us a little bit more about how you started out in it. I mean, probably the initial start of my racing career, before it was even a career, did start with just waking up and wanting to go drive a go-kart one day. It was a case of, like everyone in motorsport these days, you start in go-karts, which, you know, before you get into a a, a race-spec go-kart, you're in um, the sort of pay-and-play things that you can do at your local go-kart centre or a go-kart track, and... Luckily around the corner was was a go-kart track and they had a a championship at the end of every month on the Sunday, on the Saturday actually. So I did that when I was young and then sort of was getting a bit annoyed because we kept getting hit off and there wasn't really much sort of like stewarding with how the races were being held and everything. Um, And from then we managed to get in contact with with some people that were racing go-karts. At that point we had no idea of the world of motorsport and the world of racing, even at the go-kart level, you know, we had to get our license and then all the testing that was involved, you know, getting up to speed and then, but yeah, from the offset, I was always really competitive and, and quite quick in, in a go-kart, even at this little pay and play championship, I was always at the front and I hadn't been driving very long. So I think there was a bit of natural ability that was that was shining through. And then the competitive nature of myself suddenly overtook that and it turned into um, a really big hobby. And I remember there was one point in one year where i f- i think we were heading into the summer and we hadn't missed a weekend racing so every single weekend my dad would would drive me up all across the country and we'd participate in all the different kart events with a with a little kart team um, that i was part of yeah, and, and a mechanic and and yeah it started from there we won the british championship in 2015 and then i went into cars and yeah four years later in cars i've won them on and won the world championship congratulations it's great to have you on here what a story! How old were you when you actually got into karting? Uh, I must have been, I think, anywhere between thirteen and fourteen, because there was obviously a lot of testing without running. They probably started racing once I was already fourteen, um, which sounds young, but it's actually considered incredibly late in the industry because right. kids start nowadays say. as young as six or eight or ten. I know my teammates, swears that he he was in a go kart when he was four which I can't even imagine <laughs> um, you know how do you even reach the pedals at that age but yeah so it was you know it's, it's a bit crazy to think that I've actually won Le Mans sort of seven years on from ever stepping, stepping foot in a real go-kart because normally people grow up in karting for half their career and then the, the other half is in cars just because you you get so in you know so I don't know it just overwhelmed. I think the whole the whole racing world You bring up a great point there. So Le Mans is not the only racing you've done. I
1: saw that you've done some stuff in Daytona and some other racing series as well. So obviously it's in your blood and you like to do this. Uh, What's next for you after this? Are you just going to stick with Le Mans?
0: Yeah so I've done moving through the ranks obviously I I started in testing in a GT car which is different to a lot of people because they obviously normally go the conventional route which is single seaters and that that's normally going into like a a formula four and then moving to different championships formula reno maybe into formula three hopefully going to formula two and then formula one and it's the same sort of progression in endurance racing only it's a bit more difficult to try and get into the lmp prototype stuff because lmp2 is predominantly a professional class so it's it's not the same as sort of it's equivalent to formula two but it's very difficult to get into that so yeah i jumped into gt did a bit of racing of that did some gt3 races we were in an uncompetitive car that year, so we moved into LMP3, and I won a championship over that winter in, the, in Asia, which put me in a good position to do my first Le Mans when I was 17 in LMP2, because we'd won an entry to do Le Mans, because you have to win the entry if you weren't already entered in, in the main championships. So it's been sort of like a three-year program now, which has been the European Le Mans series, which is essentially the European championship. And then this year was my first year in the World Championship in LMP2, and we won it in our first year which Le Mans is one of the races of that. It's essentially our Monaco of our calendar. But what makes Le Mans special is the fact that there's 60 cars instead of the normal 40. And the other 20 are made up of other entries, guest entries that people can win in other series and championships that qualify for Le Mans as a prestigious event, Um, as well as the European Championship, I think like the top five in the previous year gets an entry to Le Mans actually just because it's such a, a sought-after event and it's such a high level of competition, they have to sort of qualify people into that. Um but yeah looking forward to the future, because of COVID and everything, it's a it's a strange year and a strange few years ahead. So what was pretty clear at the beginning of last year and at the beginning of this year, um has become a bit more tricky to try and figure out where my career is going to go from here on. It's going to be a question of timing everything perfectly to when money comes back into the sport manufacturers are back in and willing to to bring big programs back into the top class, which was meant to happen next year. And I think it's been delayed by a year now. Um I think it still will happen because there's a lot of interest from a lot of different manufacturers and the current new regulations for the top class are going to change and it's going to be quite compelling for a lot of these manufacturers to be able to compete. Amongst some of their rivals, you know, big manufacturers that haven't competed at Le Mans for many years because of the regulations are now going to be able to. So um, hopefully there'll be a position that I can jump into in, in the coming year or two years.
1: Oh, gosh, yeah, this, you really hit the nail on the head. This year is completely different. Next year is going to be obviously different as well. You know, so the question is, I mean, normally in these build-ups to the to Le Mans race, it's such a massive spectacle. There's, you know, there's a couple of hundred thousand people lining the streets. You've got people, you, the drivers going through the to town typically in yeah. the older cars and kind of really revving yourself up for the next day. So I guess really my question to you is, we're gonna to get to the point where what it's like actually driving in it, but what are the 24 hours like for you before the race? How do you prepare? How do you actually prepare yourself mentally? How do you get ready for that? Because it's quite, I mean, it's a big deal. I've got no idea. Tell us a little bit more about
0: that. I think there's there's definitely different stages of preparation before uh, Le Mans I think obviously being um, a sports person it requires a lot of physical training and mental training that you able to stretch yourself in the gym putting yourself in in difficult environments when you're really suffering to be able to gain the mental grit that you need to push yourself through um, which which only happens over time with experience and that's something I work on every year with my fitness. raise the bar every year and I I consider myself one of the fitter drivers and I think it's a different level of preparation because a lot of drivers in Le Mans never really live up to the task of being able to do Le Mans without an issue because it's such an overwhelming physical task of nearly no sleep and you know fatigue for entire race not only on the cars but also on the driver and you're physically and mentally drained. A lot of people just shy away from trying to prepare from that as as much as possible because they think they're always going to hit a, a failure point. And they just the hope that they can get through it, which a lot of people do. Um, whilst I hit the approach that I want to get to the point where one day I can do Le Mans and feel like I could do another six hours after, which is a bit of a stretch. But it wasn't too far away from that point this year, which I was really happy about because that, that gave me the mental strength and the mental confidence that when I got back in at the end of the race this year, and we had to suddenly start pushing because we thought we were going to, the strategy was going to unfold not in our favor. Um, it gave me the the comfort that I could perform because I wasn't, feeling massively overwhelmed with the fitness fatigue. But yeah, like you said, Le Mans this year was incredibly strange with the lack of fans. Normally, I think the figure's anywhere between two and 300,000 people. And I I don't really know how they truly get these figures because you never really feel like you see that many people. But it's like over the course of the weekend, um, which puts it as big as the biggest F1 weekend. So it's it's truly a spectacle. And, and you do feel that when you go into the, the town, normally for the driver's parade on the Friday where you're on these back of these classic cars, you're throwing out hats, t-shirts, and there's like miles. I think it's like three kilometers, four kilometers of just wall to wall fans. Like, you know, I had like four or five deep, all screaming. And that, the first time I did Le Mans in 2017, that was the most draining part of the whole weekend because I, I got there. Really? The whole energy of the place just overwhelmed me. And I remember coming back on Friday, completely shattered and thinking, Could i going to do a 24 hour race tomorrow. <laughs> I just yeah. exhausted myself because I was screaming along with the fans and everything and this year obviously there was none of that and it, right. it didn't really hit me because quite often you kind of look forward to not having to do your media requirements like you know an hour and a half autograph session although it's great for the fans I don't mind it it's nice someone can take that away from you and you have an hour and a half extra in the weekend to kind of relax especially when there's a condensed weekend this year because of COVID restrictions like we had and it was nice to have a little bit of extra time and but it really hit me when we got to the, the starting grid and they did the whole pre-grid procedures with the grid girls and national anthem and the flag getting flown by the, the army, the French army. And when they played the French national anthem over the, the loudspeakers, you normally have this absolute sea of fans, French fans to the right of me, which is built up on these massive grandstands. And a lot of the grandstands aren't permanent and it didn't realize until you were there. And it, was, it just looked so empty and, and hollow. It didn't feel like you are really at Le Mans like if I looked this way I could see all the teams all the cars all the drivers and everything felt normal but the moment I panned right it just felt like someone had cut a line down what normally would be to what was
1: wow that must have been a strange experience when you actually get going tell us about those first when they hit the forgive me and I I seem to remember it You, you still run to get in the car
0: or you're already in the car no, they used to do that. It was tradition. We still start the cars in the pre-group. You do band. a rolling start? Yeah, but now it's a rolling start because I think there was... I, don't, I can't remember who it was. and I don't want to embarrass myself by guessing the wrong name. But someone don't who, worry, I do it all the time. <laughs> he walked, walked across at the start and buckled himself in, putting himself last by a good 20 seconds. He ended up winning. But the reason he did that was to show them how silly it was because people were typically seeing the advantage that they could gain by just you know trying to buckle up down the mulsanne but when you're traveling 300 days um, it's a bit of a risk so right with health and safety and motorsport safety moving on quite drastically especially you know it's still a dangerous sport they, they try and remove any element of, of danger but we still hold the traditional pre-grid with our cars sort of right that 45 degree angle all the way down the grid and the drivers sit next to it as if to show the historic relevance
1: so before we get there, so just first of all to those listening this morning, good morning. You're listening to a British American Business Council podcast. My name is James Langridge. I'm here with the wonderful Phil Hanson. Phil, thanks again for joining us. If you're listening in and you have any questions, go to the Q and A section at the bottom of the screen. Feel free to write me one. Um, I'll ask it for you, or we bring you in live. Also, want to thank Valentine's PR and the wonderful Sarah Roberts and Melissa for setting this up. We're very grateful for this. And again, Phil, we're very grateful to have you here. For those listening who've heard it so far, and now we're talking about the actual build up to the race, Phil is now basically in the car, and we're gonna hear about what that's like. So Phil, the engines are going, you're going around the track, you're about to see the checkered flag to get going. Just describe, I mean, how do you, you're traveling up to over 200 miles an hour sometimes, or even faster, what's going through your mind? Can you think about anything else? Just, just the people listening in give us some idea of what it actually feels like to be in the cockpit of that car what's going on just give us an idea on the experience
0: yeah well i mean the experience doesn't start with you in the car able to just kind of focus because it starts with the most hectic sort of 20 seconds which is getting in the car because the car comes in um, and you do a driver change and driver changes in endurance where you have seat inserts that all fit in inside each other so i'll be taking it from one of my two other co-drivers and because the refuel is 30 seconds we want to make sure that we're done by the refueling's finished so that we can ensure that the tire change is done with the driver change is done before the tires so yeah what's important for us is to make sure that we don't make any mistakes and in those 20 seconds it's really it's really hectic You know, you're getting the belt down for the mechanic who's gonna make sure that they're connected. And if he makes one mistake or the belt is twisted, you're kind of stuck with that for the whole stint. So it's like the most hectic 20 seconds before you're trying to calm yourself down and get into a rhythm as quickly as possible. But once you're in the car, yeah, it's all about staying focused and not letting your mind drift away. It's quite easy to make mistakes and especially as the fatigue sets in, like I said your mind drifts, you start thinking about other things, not necessarily like, you know, what am I going to have for lunch tomorrow or something? It's just other things related to what you're doing at that time. You might right. be, might be getting a bit distracted with traffic. You might be getting a bit distracted with someone in your mirrors, especially at night with the glare of their, their headlights. So it's really important just to focus and get in the zone. A lot of people talk about getting in a, a zone is like a sort of intrinsic way of just focusing. And it's very difficult to try and replicate how important it is to, to get in that sort of zone, because it's just it's only then where you can really be at your max capacity because you're just, you're not thinking about anything else. You're just doing it. It's like, a, like a sixth sense.
1: A lot of, um, a lot of athletes I've heard, or some of the highest highest end athletes have said in the past that for them, when they're in those moments, that the game almost slows down for them and they can see they get an extra second on someone else because it slows down and they've got that ability to make that split second decision. Do you have ever, ever have that kind of experience? Is it just racing by at a million miles an hour? or how? And basically, are you able to slow it down and adjust to that kind of like that st- stressful environment around you?
0: Yeah, and Le Mans is a track that caters for that sort of slowing down nature that you get because of the long straights. And although people sometimes ask what are the top speeds at Le Mans because they're the fastest at any other track because we have a specific aero kit because of all the typical long straights at Le Monde you have the Mulsanne straight which is a historic straight which used to be in in one go which was like three kilometers long now it's broken up into two chicanes and a corner and although you're traveling at 330 to 340 k's and you're overtaking gts and other traffic it's actually the point at which you actually rest it's the point at which your heart rate drops because you're not really doing a lot all you're really doing is picking your breaking point for the next corner the the next chicane yeah, which is really the only point on the track where you can really rest because um, the rest of it is pretty hectic. So you're just, you're just trying to focus. You're just trying to make sure your mind's blank, but blank in the sense that you're, you're only aware of what, what you're doing. You know, your eyes are peeled for the braking point, your brake marker. I'm looking for a 100-meter broad braking into the into the first chicane, and I'm looking for the, the apex of the first chicane. Right. I'm and I'm, I'm seeing the rev lights. I'm occasionally looking down at the temps and tire pressures and, and – you know, the settings that we might change during the race and then I obviously have, have to keep an eye on, on what's inside of me and what's behind me because um you know lmp1 are slightly quicker than us so they could be dive bombing me into the chicane i need to keep relevant of that and also at this point i'm also racing other lmp2s which make it incredibly difficult because whilst i can't just be driving round because you know there's 25 other cars that want to win all with three incredibly hungry drivers that that want to win just as bad as me. So um, yeah, yeah. Every, every tenth lost in a corner is is quite penalising, and a lap round Le Mans, which is three and a half minutes long, um, it's incredibly important to be quick and on it very quickly, and to get in that zone and stay in that zone for your entire duration. And the stint length at Le Mans is typically around two hours. Just because if if you don't do long enough, you don't really give the guys enough time to rest. But normally, a quadruple stint is just over two hours.
1: So I was going to ask you about that. And by the way, there might be 25 other drivers trying to win. You won it, so congratulations, and <laughs> we're very proud of five, you for that. And
0: winning in, in LMP2 and 60 drivers overall right. fighting on the track at the same time. Yeah, exactly.
1: Not- <laughs> now you won it
0: though, so well done.
1: So let's talk about the uh, the stints because it's a 24-hour race, and how do, how do you even decide on is it is it more of an in-the-moment kind of thing because you don't want to lose the lead, that you stay in longer? Uh, is it a shorter stint? I mean, I, how do you even strategize for that? I
0: mean, tell us a little bit more about that. So normally stints are broken up, or well, stints are always broken up on, on the time. So you'll do 10 laps in a month, eight flying laps, in-lap and out-lap, equaling 10 laps, just because the fuel tank's the same for every LMP2 car. What that tends to happen is that you then base your strategy based on the, the tire. So... We were trying to quadruple stint the tire because we thought we would reduce one pit stop on the tire in the entire race. We do 37 pit stops in the entire race. And we thought that if we can quadruple stint, we can push our tire allocation far enough in that we would either be left with a lot more sets of a certain compound of tire at the end, or even better have to do one less tire change, which would be, you know, 40 seconds. or oh, no, I think it wasn't more than one less tire change. It was like a, two or three, which anyway, the the number I was told was 40 seconds we would save. But then the the loss of that, you might ask why wouldn't everyone do that, is the fact that in your fourth stint, as opposed to your third stint, the tyre legs much worse, tyres, like the degradation of the tyres increased, sliding around more, you might lose a bit more performance, and the lap time might drop off, which is the balance, because then you also have to set the car up to be slightly easier on the tyre, but without losing performance. So it's, it's a balancing act, really, and it's very difficult to get right. And what we ended up doing in the race, Race was triple stint in the tire, and then at night quadruple stinting, where it's just a little bit easier on the tire. You have added downforce because the air's cooler and the engine runs better. So typically, it's, it's always easy to, to quadruple stint or do an extra stint in the in the night, and that's where that time sort of frame comes in about just over two hours. And then in the day, as you get towards the end of the race, you do less and less and less because people are more fatigued. That's kind of right. Kind
1: of- so I get it. That's that's a great explanation, thanks. So. You're in the car and the sun is starting to set and there's that period of daylight to night time and the lights failing and the lights come on, Uh, that's got to be an adjustment. How does that work? Do you just kind of just grin and bear it and just get through it? Or do you immediately change a driver who's getting used to it? Where does that strategy
0: come in? If you're in the car when that happens, it's the best advantage because you're seeing it lap for lap for lap. So it's gradual change over the course of the 30 minute sunset. Or 30 minute sunrise so it's not really bad for you it's if you've got in out the car in complete daylight and you've got in the car in complete darkness you have right. to be incredibly quick and precise about how quickly you can pick up all these marker points that i was talking about your brake markers your, your turning markers because the night at Le Mans is so dark i can't explain to you it's the darkest because it's not a track largely it's public roads um, right. which get closed off like, like a street circuit So it's incredibly dark and even darker this year because it was held in September because it was delayed from June with with the COVID and lockdown. And then even darker again because you didn't have any light pollution from all the fans, which actually I was surprised how much they actually, you know, contributed to lighting up the track when you have all the campfires and and all the campsites and all the parties going on around the track. Wow. It's incredibly dark. So if you're getting in the car for a stint in the middle of the night and you haven't driven at the night, your first lap, you kind of, trying to remember, because you would have had a a night practice a few days before, but you're trying to be as quick and thorough to finding your marker points and getting on the pace because if it takes you a lap to get there, you might lose two seconds and if you're battling the win and the guys are ten seconds behind, those two seconds and a series of traffic laps which might upset the rhythm you know, you could quite easily the guy behind could quite easily close the gap to you
1: When you actually get a break from it what do you eat? I mean, you've got to eat. You've got to drink something. So give us some people listen. What's your, is it like McDonald's cheeseburger or something? I highly doubt it, but you've you got know, to get some fuel into
0: yourself. What kind of, what are you having during, during when you have a break? You know, last year I, I can remember when I had to get into the car for the end and I was incredibly hungry. And I, I feel like I just, I ate like Yorkshire puddings. I don't know why they had Yorkshire puddings, but. <laughs> It was, I was hungry, I wanted nothing else. I, was, I went into the, the, the hospitality area and for some reason they had like a, sort of a Sunday roast out and it was strange because they don't normally do this sort of thing. And apparently someone had asked for it and, um, and it was like the perfect meal for me because I, I, all I wanted at that point was all these Yorkshire puddings, which are fine for me. And because you're burning so many calories and you're on literally no sleep, it doesn't really matter what you eat as long as it's not incredibly bad for you because calories are calories, you need the carbs. But this year specifically, it's funny that you mentioned that. I, I felt like I couldn't eat. I don't know what it was. I felt fine. Mentally, I was strong. I, didn't, I wasn't nervous at all. People kept on commenting about how I wasn't nervous. And I think my mind was saying, you're not nervous. But my body was saying, you know, you're leading Le Mans. You know, I'm not very hungry right now because I'm a bit stressed. So for some reason, I was really struggling to eat. But um, it's on, on an occasional race. apart part this year where, where I struggle to eat It's normally just your pasta, chicken, spinach, typical thing, which, um, which you get in your little lunchbox for when you get out of the car
1: when you get out do you even have
0: a chance to sleep do you
1: get is there like allotted sleep times or are you just so wired from what's going on i can't i mean there must be so much adrenaline going through you and if you sleep then you've got to rev yourself back up i mean yeah. tell us a little bit i mean do you how do you rest
0: again this year was different for me because people i've always heard the typical person the macho person saying oh i never sleep at le mans and i thought how can you never sleep at le mans i'm normally shattered and this year I couldn't sleep. And it was, again, I think the, the fact that we were leading the race and also probably wasn't helped by the fact that our motorhome was at turn one and it was just so noisy. Normally you try and sleep twice in the race and your. I mean, you know, you're not, not going to fall asleep in the middle of the day right. unless you're tired. So um, it was in the night stints where I was trying to sleep. I couldn't sleep. It was one time where I went to bed. And the problem is if I come out of the car and I have a four-hour window before I get back in the car, that four-hour window is already cut short by half an hour either side, half an hour getting changed and having a shower and half an hour getting, making sure that I'm in the garage ready in case there's a safety car or something and I go in early. Then you have half an hour less because you typically get treatment from your physio. So this four hours is already down by an hour and a half, so you're left for two and a half hours. By the time you eat, another half an hour gone. That gives you two hours. And then if anything changes with the strategy, you've lost another hour then you've got to get to the motorhome and get back. So your four hour window suddenly turns into about an hour and a half. If at best, wow. at best. Sure. best. And, and then by the time you try and switch off, another 20 minutes lost. By the time you wake up and get changed and have a shower, another 20 minutes lost. And in those 40 minutes, I, 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 or the 40 minutes I got this year, I was completely conscious because all I could hear was the crackling of the exhaust out of turn one. And or every, every 10 minutes, i checking my phone to see where we were. So and you're winning, right? You want to, an, I can
1: imagine the excitement. So probably basically you're saying a couple of espressos and you're back in the car. That's, yeah. that's kind of what kept you going. I yeah, love it. You're
0: going um, the with a magic trick, I think.
1: I love it. You said you hit on something earlier and I, and I didn't ask it then, but I'm going to ask it now. I imagine the sun going down is quite an experience, but the sun coming up and racing in a dream race in a car that you're winning in. Did you get to experience the sun
0: coming up and driving, or was that another teammate that was doing it? Fortunately, not. It's actually called Golden Hour because it's okay. the time of the track where the track's the quickest. It's when the air's still cold, but the sun is heating up the surface. And normally, those are when the fastest lap times get put in. And every driver wants Golden Hour. And right. I was actually scheduled to have Golden Hour because we see the pre run sheet of where we're going to go. Felipe, me, Paul, Felipe, me, Paul. And if you're on Golden Hour or set to be in Golden Hour, there's nearly almost guaranteed that you're not going to get golden hour because with a safety car, two safety cars, slow zones, a stint cut short with some issue, you're always going to get pushed out. So the best chance of having golden hour is to not be set to have golden hour, if that makes sense, because the race never goes to plan. There's always safety cars and, and other things that go on that upset the race strategy. You know, we're We have a a, a sort of document that gets updated every couple hours to show us what the new time we have to be ready for because the car doesn't stop. You know, it's crazy when people can't really think about it. My my friends came last year to to see it for the first time and they were blown away by the fact the car just doesn't stop. You know, it stops momentarily to have fuel and change tire, but then it's it's on the rev limiter as you're pulling away on a race clutch. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable.
1: No, it's unbelievable that a car can do that as well. I mean, at, at that high level of speed and that calibration, it, it's a feat of engineering. And you've got a whole team behind you, Phil. I mean, how many people do you have on the team? It's got to be so. Tell us a little bit more about the, the structure of the team.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of people and there's a lot of effort that goes in. And largely, it's a team sport. Like I, I alluded to earlier, it was 37 pit stops this year at Le Mans. 37 pit stops every 30 minutes just over 30 minutes to I mean, just under 40 minutes, actually. So 39 minutes. So those mechanics and, and engineers, they don't sleep. The team manager doesn't sleep because his two cars were one and two at one point in the race. And we won the race. You know, we weren't leading for, for a lot of the race. We, we, were ha- we were having issues in the pit stops, which we couldn't work out. For some reason, all our pit stops were slow on refueling. And that was killing a lot of, a lot of our lead and, and bringing us back down the field. And we'd have to keep catching up gradually and bringing down strategy would change, which would drop us back. But yeah, the mechanics and the engineers, the engineer didn't sleep at all mechanics very 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 rarely sleep because they've only got a 25 minute 30 minute margin in between each stop to sleep really because they've got to be ready in case of pitting in a lap early but yeah in terms of personnel we have normally like three or four number twos a number one mechanic engineer chief engineer team manager for lmp2 overseer team manager and a team owner and that's just for one car you have the same thing mirrored for the second car minus the chief engineer and the team manager, because he's for both cars. And then you've got all the catering staff, the physio, anyone else that supports it. Then you've got the the people on the tires, because, you know, with 37 pit stops, we've got like 14 sets of tires or something allocated for the the race. So then you've got a tire man per car, two helpers. And you've got a composites guy that repairs all the, the carbon works and the composites because we, we, we damage the things as we go on in practice and we need to repair them for the race. Um, we've got two of those and then there's loads of other people helping out. So, you know, at the end of it, well, I'm afraid to know what the number is, but I, I think it's probably like high 30s, low 40s. Wow, that's
1: great. I mean, good morning, everyone who's listening in, by the way, British American Business Council, LA. We have Phil Hanson, who's the winner of the most recent the Mons race. Great to have you here, Phil. Phil, I've got a couple more questions and then we're gonna let you get on your way. We talked about what it's like to build up to the race, what it's physically like starting the race, what it's like resting during the race. When did you actually got, I mean, obviously, until they wave the flag and you know you've won. In the build up to that last couple of hours in the race, you have to forgive me because I didn't see that part of it. Were you leading all the way in the last couple of hours? Was it that close? Did you know you'd won? Did you sit back on the throttle a little bit and just enjoy the moment? Tell us a little bit about
0: that. Well, the last couple hours were stressful, definitely. I was in the car, and which is good for me because I would have hated right. in the garage watching it. And it was, yeah, we were leading the race. We had about a minute and a half lead, minute, 40 seconds. And then with an hour to go with me in the car, there was, it all started to kick off. There was two slow zones just in time for the person's second pit stop and his strategy was out of sync with us because they, they we gambled on a stop earlier on in the night with a safety car and they didn't and the strategies just to go out just towards the end of the race and what that meant was they were able to gain back 30 seconds because they were stopping and we were effectively driving a bit slower during the slow zone because of an accident they gained back 30 seconds which put them in a dangerously close window if they caught up a certain amount could they be on the same safety car as us because Again, it's going to confuse a lot of people at Le Mans with it being such a long track, you know, three and a half minute time. There's actually three safety cars, all equidistant from each other going around at the same speed. But it's a lot more confusing. So you you bunch up only up to your safety car. So it means if you're the first car in the safety car queue, you've lost out by get, being able to gain up all that time to the next safety car. Likewise, Hi. if you're the last car to get through before, or a so if you're just past safety car B and you, you're going to be behind safety car A you get to catch up on all your leaders so then a safety car came out and luckily we got through and the Jota car which was second um, with Anthony Davidson driving who's a Sky Pundit for F1 and a formidable racing driver has been with Toyota for many years at the top of his game he got in the safety car behind so for us it was like a breath of fresh air you know, he was going to be a safety car behind but what then happened was all the times and distances and deltas get distorted because we're now traveling so much slower. So the gaps which normally would read a minute, a minute and a half, 53 seconds, point, whatever, now read like three minutes. So we're thinking two minutes, so we're thinking, okay, you know, we don't know what it is, but it's difficult to judge and it's Im- nearly impossible to be able to read through the data because it depends on how fast you were going on the last lap in a predicted calculation. When we went green, we realized he was only 50 seconds behind, which was fine. But then what had happened was because the safety car went on so long and they had pitted two laps before us, we thought they were able to go right to the end without having to splash for a bit of fuel at the end. And we knew we had to splash. So whilst also managing a a heating issue with the engine, having to lift and coast and still driving flat out, obviously, but trying to manage this, this issue and not take any tow from the GTs and making sure we were being gentle with revs and um which is something you don't normally have at them or normally it's a 24-hour sprint race and it's something you don't want when you message that the guy behind could be could be in with a shout i was suddenly told to push for two laps so with what i was four laps to go to the end with a splash dash two laps before the end i had two laps to to bring gap this lead and on the first lap i did a a good enough job and then my in-lap was incredibly strong and i think for anyone that watched there was a a real heart in your mouth moment when i actually locked up slightly coming into the pits and it was because i was pushing that hard because my understanding was they didn't have to stop and i was going to come out of the pits slightly behind of them or vent um, in the jota but what happened was as i was coming out of the pits and i'm getting the radio message you know davidson last corner davidson start line davidson pit wall and I'm coming out the pits at this point. I come out in front of him. I stay in front that next lap and then it turned out he had to pit for fuel. So obviously he hadn't saved enough fuel in the safety car to be able right. to make it to the end. Their engineers maybe had overlooked something and not realized they could have potentially done that or they didn't realize the safety car would go on for that long and enabling them to do that. But yeah, there was a point where I think I was quoted saying, um, I thought we'd thrown it away. And I did, I thought as a team, you know, we, we'd thrown it away because of strategy, which is just something that happens, but we hadn't. And even if we would have, we would yeah. have.
1: Yeah. What a wonderful way to explain it. Phil, tell us about that last lap. Tell us that feeling. Don't even worry about the lap. How did it feel when you crossed the finish line and you knew you'd brought it home and won it for, the t- for you and the team? How did that feel?
0: Yeah. I mean, when, when I got the message that it was last lap, it's just a question of going through every corner, not making a mistake, not taking any more curves. Yeah you know you don't want to be getting a puncture on the last lap because there's a lot of debris after 24 hours and i knew i had four seconds or 30 seconds because they had to stop in the end and i think we 50 seconds and he came back we ended at 32 seconds because i literally my last lap was so sort of cautious um every time i came up against traffic normally i'd be passing them without a hesitation in some dangerous areas i was you know hesitating to pass them in certain in certain curved straights and then i saw my sister car but the sister car looked awfully similar to the Jota. And I, and I was on the radio driving a bit faster thinking, who's behind me, who's behind Oh no, it's just the sister car because we're doing a photo finish for the team. And then you go into the last chicane and there's a man with a flag on the actual racetrack, which is something that isn't done at any other race event. And it's done historically at Le Mans because people respect the fact that they swim. We're yet to get to the case where someone's battling for the lead right to the last moment. And suddenly there's a man in the middle of the track waving a flag, <laughs> but yeah. Brilliant. Um, as I, as I crossed the line, it was just this absolute relief. It's all this stress that builds up over 24 hours, and suddenly it's like someone, it's like someone pulling a rope away from you and suddenly letting go of the rope, and you, it, suddenly you've got it. <laughs> yeah, and then it's a long old lap into the, into, back into the pits, and a, a bit of celebration with, uh, with the team and my teammates. And a lot of I can imagine it's
1: quite a celebration, yeah. Then and afterwards as well, I'm sure. I'm glad you explained that. I've got my father listening in today and he's recently out of hospital and he was watching you and he stayed up all night to watch most of it and he fell asleep for the last hour and he actually missed the finish. So I'm glad that he got to hear you explain it. And his name is Rob. Good morning, dad. Great that you're here. Right. I, um, what a wonderful way to, to describe it. Gosh, I would have thought I was in the car with you. That was brilliant. <laughs> you know, we've got a couple of minutes left. I've got two questions for you. Okay. The first one I'm going to ask is, what's next? What's now? I mean, I'm sure you've got, you're going back into racing. We were talking about it before. Is this you? Is this what you want to do ultimately? Are you going to move into any other different mode of sport or are you going to stick with them all? And
0: this is it for me. I think um, endurance racing is my, my career path. And yeah, ultimately it's going to be about positioning myself for the best possible factor drive and just trying to have a long lasting career and come back and win the world championship and win the top class at Le Mans. Um, right now I won an LMP2, which is the second highest class. Um, it's like winning a Formula 2 championship. And I want to come back essentially and win Formula 1. All it right, sounds two. like
1: you're well on your way. Yeah, hopefully. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. You have big goals and I'm sure a lot of people have got, uh, are supporting you along the way. So that's great, Phil. So here's the last question. I asked to all our guests that come along. And by the way, good morning, everyone. If you're listening in, this has been the British American Business Council here in Los Angeles. We've got the wonderful Phil Hansen, winner of the most recent Le Mon. It's great to have you here. Phil, I- I've had lots of different guests on over the last few months. With the lockdown, we've had a lot of people coming in. And I've always ended up asking them this. If they're listening in now, or, and, and from your own experiences as well, what kind of piece of positivity that you, know, you could share to anyone listening in, no matter what they're going through right now, different walks of life, from your own experiences, what, what do you pull on? What could you give them?
0: You know, I've been asked this question a couple of times, and I've always wondered, when I was asking the question when I was, when I was a bit younger, and I, I hated hearing an answer that gets repeated quite often, which is, which is I've found to be true. It's just as simple as hard work always pays off. And I, I hate that answer, because you, you kind of wish you, there's a, there's a the trick to it, you know, there's a wish, a, a trick to life, but there isn't, unfortunately. And the hours in the gym, the hours grinding away, the work you put in, the commitment, the dedication at a young age, not going into any school parties, making sure I was balancing my school work with my karting and racing. It's all about the balance between what you're able to give in for what you want, really. It's how committed you are, how much work you're willing to put in. And I think that's always been what I've, what I've known my success to come from, is just how hard I, and how willing I was to put the work in. Which isn't something I wanted to hear, to be honest, because I always wanted the, the quick answer and an answer that what I would like to hear, which was if you, you know, drink this type of water, you'll win and become successful in every way possible. But no, I have found it's, it's just it's just mirrors hard work.
1: Well, that, that's a great answer. and I appreciate it. And to everyone listening, thank you very much for listening in today. Uh, once again, we've had the wonderful Phil Hansen on. Thank you very much to Valentine's PR and Sarah Robarts and her team for setting this up. We are very grateful. And to everyone listening, this has been another British American Business Council, Los Angeles podcast. My name is James Langridge. Phil, you're a gentleman. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Enjoy the rest of your day over in England. And um, we'll be watching you, buddy. Good
0: luck. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thanks, Phil. Thank you for listening Please like and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your favorite platform. Your likes and reviews really do help us reach new listeners.